to the New Testament book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Right about in the middle of the last third of your Bibles, you'll find the book of Colossians. We'll begin in chapter 2 today. We are in a series on the book of Colossians, and we're calling this series Greater. And today, as I was just sitting there thinking before I came up here just now, I, I, I thought, I think it'd be fair to warn you that, that I might step on some toes today. And um, I think it would be fair for me to say that uh, I was challenged this week with this sermon in my study, and so my hope is that you would be challenged today also. To be clear, when we use the word greater in this series, we're not talking about being a greater Christian than someone else, and we're not talking about having a greater church than another one. In the letter to the Colossians, in the church at Colossae, we see that Jesus himself, the salvation that he gives and the life that he calls us to is greater than any other God's and any other philosophies, and any other lifestyles. I think we we would all say that a growing disciple of Jesus Christ will surely want to be committed, counted as the highly committed. And many times when we think about being a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, we use words like, we want to be radical, radical for God. We want to, we use words like, I want to be spirit-filled, or I want to be outwardly focused. I want to be an organic Christian. And all of those are sort of signals to others that our tribe or my type is more pleasing to God than yours is. I think that as you, and I hope as, as you talk with people in the community and your family and friends, and you invite them to be a part of our Nova community here, I, I, I would imagine that after you invite someone to be a part, they're going to ask you the question, well, what kind of church is Nova? And, and they're, they're thinking of, is this going to fit me? So how would you answer that question? Because I know you've been asked. I hope you've been asked. What kind of church is Nova Community Church? And, and, I, and I think of answers that you might use or that I have used. I mean, people will say, well, we're a biblical church, right? I mean, I think some people would say, we're a, we're a Bible-believing church. I've heard someone say that just maybe about a month ago. They said, find yourself a Bible-believing church. What kind of church is Nova? Or... Maybe someone would say, we're a, we're a gospel-centered church, or, or we're a missional church, or we're an inclusive church. Are we a friendly church? I mean, you, you've got to really ask yourself that. I, and I wonder, and, I, and I, I was thinking about this, what kind of church is Nova? And I, and I wonder if anyone would say, um, I don't need to describe what Nova Community Church is like. I am the church. I'm the church. If you want to know what Nova's like, just get to know me. I, no one ever asks, is, is Nova a church that loves Jesus? Because that's too generic for some people. You know what I mean? 
It's, it doesn't speak to someone's secret code or someone's secret handshake, you know, to, to get in. Because all of that leads to competition if you have a secret code for your church or it leads to territorialism or it fosters pride or exclusivity in legalism. In our long text today, we're going to start in verse 4 in chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 23. The Apostle Paul gives warnings and he gives encouragement to the Colossians who are facing similar, not the same pressures, but similar pressures that we face today with sort of elitism Christianity and legalism. Pastor Dave talked to us over the last two Sundays about a philosophy that was infiltrating the Colossian church called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this mysterious, complicated, um, somewhat astrological elitism that mixes scriptures with Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy. And Gnostics position themselves as, as having a higher level of thinking and something more that would elevate the ignorant to the deep things of God. It was a dangerous philosophy that led people away from Jesus. And Paul writes this letter to say Jesus is greater than all these things. So let's get into our text today. Paul settles all of this with the Colossians. And the first section of our text today, we're going to call this spirituality warnings and encouragement. And the first point that we can make here is that God is, is pleased by character. And he's pleased by obedience, not by following man-made rules and traditions. God's pleased by character and obedience. Verse 4, Paul writes, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It's a clear warning to this Colossian church. When you read throughout the Bible and you read that so-and-so, this person or that person, is, is, has pleased the Lord, it has to do with their character and it has to do with their obedience to the explicit commands of the Scriptures. The reality is, though, I don't know your character unless we hang out a lot. And I don't know if you're obeying the Scriptures unless I watch your life for a long time. So what we do is we set up, because I want to know, we set up man-made boundaries. They're, they're boundary markers that are sometimes traditions and sometimes rules that every tribe and every culture has their own set of them. And we judge whether God's pleased with us by whether you jump through the right hoops that we set up when, if you follow the right rules and the right traditions. It, an example of this would be that 
If God says in the Scriptures, in the Bible, if God says in the Scriptures not to go beyond, beyond and we'll call it fence C, okay, he says this is the scriptural mandate. This is explicit. Don't go beyond this fence that we're setting up, and we'll call it fence C. And so we know that, but then sometimes well-meaning people, sometimes leaders, don't want young believers to get too close to fence C, which is God's scriptural explicit mandate. So well-meaning people will say, I don't want you young people to get too close to fence C, or old people, I guess, too. Anyways, uh, I, I don't want you to get too close to fence C, so I'm going to set up a fence B in front of it. And sometimes we'll set up a little fence A in front of that. And after a while, no one can distinguish between the God fence and the not God fence. So human nature does it too. When you put up a fence, what do you want to do? When you say, don't go beyond this fence, everybody. You see a a fence and you see a, a sign that says, careful, electrical fence. Don't you want to get kind of close and spit on it or something? I mean, I mean, just really see if that's really what it is. So human nature is you put up a fence and you say, you say don't climb it. What do humans want to do? They want to get close to it, right? It's sort of the, what I call the curse of the wet paint sign, right? You put a wet paint sign up there and, and what is it about us, right? We want to get up and is it really, is it really, it's yeah, it is wet. Now what do I do with this, right? And, and it's just how we are. Another thing we do is sometimes we design extra disciplines or steps to try to please God. They're just hoops to jump through. We say things like, and you can complete the sentence, if you really love God and want to please him, you will, and then fill in the blank, you will get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray every morning. You will only read a certain type of a Bible translation because it's most accurate. You will attend a certain amount of church events because that will really please God. And they're just hoops to jump through. Paul gives us spirituality warnings and encouragement. The first is God's pleased by character and obedience not by following man-made rules and traditions. Second point we can make here is this. In Christ, very important, in Christ, everything has been paid for. We simply follow and obey. In Christ, everything's been paid for. We just simply follow and obey. Verse 9, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness He is the head over every power and authority. Jesus is fully God, and every follower of Jesus has been given his fullness. He is the head of every power and every authority. It's very clear there. Verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self-ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, some little bit of theologically complicated stuff here. Let me, let me just try to unpack this for us. Normally, circumcision refers, does not refer to death. 
but rather that common rite of circumcising eight-day-old baby boys by cutting away a portion of their flesh. But here, it's used as a gruesome metaphor for the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified on the cross, not the stripping away of some flesh, but the violent removal of his body in death. And Paul says the Colossians are in him and shared in his crucifixion. And their sinful nature was put to death by his crucifixion. He also mentions baptism. In their baptism, they, were, they spiritually shared in Christ's death. And in baptism, Christians follow the commands of Jesus. They obeyed Jesus by professing their faith in him. And the word picture, the metaphor is, is, is simple and it's very beautiful. It's, it's the bearing of our sinful nature as we go down in the water. It's, it's the, the word picture of we're bearing our sinful nature and as we rise up out of the water, we're rising up in new life in Jesus. We're having a baptism celebration on the 21st of February and frankly, some of you, you've never done this before and it's time. It's time that you grow in that. You don't have to be perfect enough. If you, are, if you have professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have not been baptized as that profession of that faith, my encouragement to you is let's do this. Let's, we want to celebrate with you. And it's your public profession of faith. Talk to me after, after worship this morning if that's what you'd like. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now the word dead here is a description of, of the state of every human being who is, who is apart from Jesus Christ, who is separated from Jesus Christ, who is not a, a believer in Jesus, who does not follow him. That's the description of your life. You're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. It's not flattering. We can't escape it. It's just what it is. Verse 14. He, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible here. The Apostle Paul says that our guilt, our sin, was like a charge of legal indebtedness. What, what would that be like? What would be a charge of legal indebtedness be? It would be like an IOU, just like an IOU. It's, it's an IOU promising to obey God. We said, God, we promise to obey you, but we couldn't obey God, so then we're guilty. And Jesus took that IOU, all of our IOUs, all of them, and he nailed them to the cross. Just as the charges that were nailed over Jesus' head by Pontius Pilate on the cross, he nailed them to the cross and he forgave us all. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of, 
of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, is it gives us some very cl- a very clear picture. He says, He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. In light of the scripture, I hope, in light of the scripture, I hope that you can see how foolish we are when we try to follow or impose our own rules and traditions and extra fences and hoops on the lives of another person. This is an incredibly important principle as we become disciples and we make disciples of Jesus Christ. So important. Let's take a look at this next section in this long text that Paul writes about. We're going to call this three spiritual hoops that will ruin your relationship with God. And in this next section, this next long section, Paul uses this phrase, therefore do not let anyone... And, and we're going to take a look at each of these and, and unpack them and, and understand them for us in, in, in today's world. These are three spiritual hoops that will ruin your relationship with God. The first is this. We call this ceremonial Christianity. The first hoop that will just ruin your relationship with God is ceremonial Christianity. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, or Halloween trick-or-treating, an inflatable Santa Claus on your front lawn during Christmas, the Easter bunny, your choice to homeschool your children, or to Christian school your children, or to public school your children. He says these are a shadow, in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that ceremony and ritual are wrong. It can be a nice thing. It can even be helpful to you. But God is not impressed by big ceremony or a perfectly performed ritual. I grew up in a church tradition where men wore suits, women wore skirts, and children wore their Sunday best. And more than that, I grew up in that tradition that said that God cared deeply about what you wore on Sunday morning. I'm glad I got over that real fast. (laughs) But I also grew up in that church that loved ceremony. They loved ritual. You know, some churches don't have crosses. Some do. Some meet in beautiful, soaring cathedrals. Our church got started in a high school cafetorium that was really dirty and smelly. You know what? God cares about our hearts. That's what he cares about. And and if ceremony is a priority in your life, here's what you end up with. You end up with a couple different gods. If ceremony is so important to you in your life, you end up with a stupid God is what you do. That God is pleased or he's really annoyed by perfect or imperfect rituals. You have a guy that pays all kinds of attention to ritual but doesn't care about your heart at all. 
Or you have not just a stupid God, you have an arbitrary God. A, you have a heartless God who sometimes cares about ritual, and other times he just ignores it. He's just this God that's a moving target, so you can never really figure out what pleases God at all. And you never get to know him at all either. And you know what? He doesn't care about you either. People judge churches all the time by Southern California. How casual is your church, right? It's okay to wear shorts and a t-shirt. How formal is your church? What kind of style of music does your church have? How big is your church? How many programs do you have? you have programs for all ages and all stages? As if God was pleased with a church that's more casual than he is with a more formal church. As if God is pleased by the size of the church. God, I read in the Bible, God searches for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The first spiritual hoop that will ruin your relationship with God is, is ceremonial Christianity. The second one I call hyper-spirituality. Hyper-spirituality. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, their dreams and their visions. And they're puffed up with their idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God calls, causes it to grow. Just in the last section before this, um, Paul makes it explicit that the head of the church is Jesus Christ. You've lost connection with Jesus is what Paul's saying right here. Some people are so into their own dreams and, and seeing visions of God and having special revelation or they're searching for this sort of this inner peace that's something that, that they feel on the inside. They're, they're searching for those things that they lose connection with the head of the church that's Jesus Christ. They rely more on visions and more on new revelation and a special touch from God rather than God's word. It's hyper-spirituality. This is how cults begin. Someone has a dream. Someone writes it down. They make it into a book, and they say, well, that book is way more important than the Scriptures now. But I've seen in churches just like Nova, just like us, people just like us, making big mistakes about decisions in their life because they're judging their inner peace as, most, as the most significant factor in making decisions. I've seen very godly people make stupid decisions because they trusted their inner compass more than they trusted the Bible. And there are some of you right now, right here, hearing my voice, and you're living your life in a certain way, and you are doing or not doing what God is directing you through the scriptures. And you're doing these things in your dating life. And you're doing these things perhaps in your marriages. You're doing this by gossiping, by lying. 
You're doing this by robbing God and not tithing to the church? You're doing this by holding unforgiveness in your heart? And you are not obeying him because you are trusting in your inner compass, your inner peace, rather than the head of the church that's Jesus Christ. And your conscience is not your guide to measure if you're living up to God's standard. That's not your guide. We have a guide to see if we're measuring up to God's standard, and that's the Scriptures. Your conscience is a guide to see if you're measuring up to your own standard. And you know what? Your standard moves all the time about how you feel. That's how your standard goes. These things are going to ruin your relationship with God. It's ceremonial Christianity. It's, it's hyper-spirituality. And the third is this, last one. It's extra-biblical rules. This is going to mess you up big time. Verse 20, Paul writes, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This, this scripture makes sense. We should not add any of our own rules to our faith. But we tend to add our own rules. Many times it'll be helpful. It, it's kind of funny as, as parents. I'm, I'm a parent, and I know many of you are parents. You know, let's be honest, parents. We made mistakes growing up, didn't we? <laughs> and it, even though we survived our own mistakes, we made mistakes growing up as parents. And, you know, we have kids, and we don't want our kids to make the same mistakes we did, right? So we set up rules to guard our children from making the same mistakes we made, even though we survived our mistakes. And even though some of us would testify and profess that I grew stronger, I learned my lessons better by making those mistakes. But we don't want our kids to make any of those mistakes. And so we set up rules sometimes. And we do this to help our kids. We love our kids, and we do this to help our kids. But what we're really doing sometimes is sometimes we're just trying to help out God with our kids. God doesn't need our help. He needs us to, to be parents. He needs us to, to understand what the Scriptures say about parenting. And when you're making your rule for your kid and trying to spin it as that's God's rule, kids, you're a liar. It's not right. Larry Osborne in his book, Accidental Pharisees, he talks about what I love, old school legalism and new school legalism. There's an old school legalism. I, I think we understand old school legalism. It's the, it's the dirty dozen, right? It's the alcohol, you know, don't drink, don't go to movies. Old school legalism is don't do anything with tobacco, um, watch the music with a beat, right? Uh, no dancing, uh, no playing cards, except for um, Uno. <laughs> and maybe that's a little dangerous too. Anyways, uh, 
watch their clothes, how long your hair is for guys, no tattoos. I mean, that's only nine, but there's three more that I don't even know of. Um, but that's old school legalism, right? And everyone understands that. But you know what? Hey, we're so cool as modern day Christians. You know, we're, 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 we're so cool that modern day Christians, they kind of scoff at those, at that old school legalism. They say, it's so 1940s Christianity. It's so 50s Christianity, right? That's not us anymore. And so, you know, that's old school legalism. So it's so cool these days if you can start your church in a nightclub or a pub. So cool. You're so cool if, if, um, if you go see movies. and there, you know, There's faith-based movies now, and those are okay to see. But old school legalism would say, ah, don't even go to a movie theater. You know, if you got some expensive cigars or that small batch microbrew in the fridge, man, you're going to be popular at the next barbecue. That's new school stuff, right? That's old school, new school, and you're kind of dealing with that. And sometimes that same group of modern Christians that rejects old school legalism that judges Christians in a new school legalism. Like this, it's, it's sort of the new legalism in Christianity is, are you radical enough? Are you radical enough to intentionally reject luxuries in your life, like expensive cars and owning your own home? Are you radical enough? Do you make too much money? Or you have expensive taste in cars or clothes or shoes or electronics? If you have that, you're not radical enough. It's new school legalism. Another new school legalism is, are you missional enough? These are Christians who want to know what you're doing to fulfill the mission of God. And so these Christians are into opening up soup kitchens and helping the homeless. And they sell their homes in the suburbs and move to the inner city to start a church among the urban poor. It's all the rage right now to do that. And if your church is large or you own a big three and three quarters acre property in a metropolitan or suburban area, you're obviously compromising with the world's culture. New school legalism also is the gospel-centered ones, if you've ever heard that. These are Christians who like to determine spiritual maturity by a theological grid. They like big words in old theologians. They have careful distinctions about the scriptures and they love to get in nuanced debates with others. You'll need a robust intellect and a decent education to be part of this crew. So if you're a little slow on the uptake, if you're dyslexic, if you're very pragmatic, if you're more action-oriented, if you're better with your hands than you are with your mind, you can join in, but you just can't talk. New school legalism isn't just the radical ones and the missional ones or the gospel-centered ones. It's also the revolutionary ones. It's very interesting. It's a big thing right now where these are Christians who've been deeply hurt and disillusioned by the organized church. And they are so emotionally aware and vocally critical of the flaws of the church. And so these Christians are so all in on something called the house church movement where small groups of Christians meet in homes, kids and all, and they're purposefully organic. 
purposefully relational, communal, and process-oriented. This is the new school legalism, and it changes with the times. And I'll, I'll tell you this. All of these expressions of the Christian faith are trying to emphasize something good. And they're all loved deeply by God. And they all have an important place in the kingdom. But the moment we allow our personal passion and calling to be a litmus test by which we decide who is and who isn't a genuine disciple, we've taken a step too far. And we become new school legalists. Just because a passion or a calling, an extra fence, a hoop, or a rule has been helpful to you, it's, you have no right to put that on somebody else. i got plenty of extra rules in my life for me. i got plenty of habits that, and disciplines that I engage in every single day, but they're for me in my own life, and they've been such a great help for me to grow spiritually. And many times young men and, and pastors will they'll say, can, Dean, can we get together? Can, can we meet? I just want to know about your life and, and how you live your life and how you grow in your relationship with God. And I might share some of these things, their hoops, their rules, their disciplines, their things that I do every day, every week. But you will never hear me telling someone that they must do what I'm doing. And Paul would say simply this, don't do that, just point them to Jesus. Just This is Jesus. He's the greater one. And then let's rely on the work of the Holy Spirit to take another person into a growing and deeper relationship with God. Remember, the Apostle Paul never visited Colossae, and he wrote this letter to encourage them and to warn them with the words that we read in the beginning of our text today. In verse 4, he says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand for the benediction.